This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The worst internet in America is in Colorado's San Luis Valley. That's according to the news site 538. Not even 6% of adults in Sawatch County have broadband. The truth is, painfully slow internet service is a problem across rural Colorado. Take Cleve Simpson, who farms alfalfa outside of Alamosa. He comes to Denver sometimes and says the contrast is stark. It's kind of nice to sit down and sometimes have multiple windows open, multitasking, and have nearly instantaneous results where here you get accustomed to five or 10 or at home, sometimes 20 or 30 seconds for something to load up or it may not load up at all. And when he's home, Simpson gets internet service from his cell phone provider. It's a snail's pace. <laughs> I use it for current weather predictions and models. We monitor groundwater withdrawal. So I have a meter on my well that's measuring water withdrawn. I can access that and see that real time. And uh, again, with a slower service, it just means it's not as convenient as, as it probably could be. About one in five households in rural Colorado and many businesses are without basic high-speed internet service known as broadband. Governor John Hickenlooper promised earlier this year that everybody in Colorado would have high-speed internet access by 2020. Tony Neal Graves is the man he appointed to make that happen. And Tony, welcome to the program. Good morning. So that 100% goal by 2020 just three years from now. Is that doable? That's a great question. I, uh, I think that uh, it's a tough goal to hit um, at this point. Uh, the challenge that we have is, I think, around the areas of having enough resources in terms of money to really go build out that infrastructure. Uh, we're on a good path to get there, but I have to admit to you that, you know, whether or not we actually hit the 100% or not is not really what the objective is. I think the focus... Well, wait, why, be... why set that goal then if that's not the objective? Well, I think you have to think about it from the point of view that it's going to be very difficult to do. Um, but if we don't set these really aggressive goals for ourselves, then we don't make any progress at all. And I think that's the point that I'm, I'm really trying to make. Where do you think the state would be reasonably then by 2020? Well, I still have the objective as well of 100 percent. But, you know, I'm also pragmatic to know that if we don't get the funding in place, we don't have the bill seasons to make it happen. It's going to be a real challenge. We'll get into the details of rolling this out in a bit. But Cleve Simpson, that alfalfa farmer, describes, you know, many seconds of delay uh, and outages here and there when he's surfing the Web. What is at stake statewide? Why has the governor made this a priority? Well, I think, you know, most of us have been exposed to the Internet, if you will, or broadband through entertainment services. You know, you think about most of us that live in urban areas. That's how we've been exposed to it. Watching Netflix or something. Exactly. But I think what's happened is that it's shifting more towards being an critical piece of infrastructure for economic development. So it's tied to whether or not you can run your business. It's tied to whether or not you can have good educational outcomes. It's tied to whether or not um, you can have good health care services in a community. So it's linked to just about everything that we do. And the analogy I would use is that it was the same type of infrastructure conversations that we were having uh, back in the early 1900s around electric service. It's the same conversation that we had around providing voice services to people in the late 50s and 60s. I think this is just the next infrastructure investment that we have to make. Okay, so this affects schools as well, you're saying, when you say educational outcomes? Absolutely, because most of our educators are moving to an environment where it's more digitized, where you have expectations that kids are going to take tests online. Um, they're going to do research. You know, when I was growing up as a kid, 
Um, I had an Encyclopedia Britannica. Well, we only had three of them because we couldn't afford the whole set. Okay. So I went to the library. But, you know, if you think about it now, if a child wants to do research for a paper, they would want to go online to do that. They can access it in a lot of times in schools, but if they go home and they don't have access, it's very difficult for them to really do their homework and to be more competitive in the educational environment. So we talked about Southern Colorado, Sawatch mm-hmm. County in particular. Well, mm-hmm. where else in the state are people struggling with speeds? I, I think, frankly, if you move off of the front range and the major metropolitan areas, whether it's eastern Colorado or anywhere on the western slope, you can find areas that have challenges. Um, Sawatch uh County is no different than many other counties in the state that really struggle with having high-quality, high-speed, affordable broadband. Can you point to either the loss of companies or ones that have plainly not made the decision to relocate to a place in Colorado because of a lack of, of high-speed Internet? Well, you know, I think rather than talking about companies that haven't uh, or moved out, I think you think about the next opportunities for the rural parts of the state – if I want to build a company and deliver it in um, and move into an area where where the the, uh, the technology is not there for me to build that business, I'm not going to go there. A great example of this is uh, a company out on the Western Slope that does uh, video uh, surveillance using drones and they take pictures for people. Okay. And when they come back in the community that they're in, they don't have good broadband services, so they would have to go to – Grand Junction in order to upload those files. So that's an example of a business. They're doing that currently. Yes. And that's just yes. another expense and time that they exactly. face. Exactly. Exactly. Are they threatening to move over that? Uh, no. What they would like to see is to get good broadband in, in the more rural place where they live so that they cannot have to do that all the time. So that, that's an, uh, uh, an example of advocacy. You're listening to Colorado Matters. Mm-hmm. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking mm-hmm. with the man that uh, Governor John Hickenlooper has put in charge of making broadband available to all in Colorado. He's Tony Neal Graves. And Tony, you talk about money mm-hmm. being an obstacle here. Mm-hmm. Is it state money? Is it local dollars? Who pays for broadband build-out when it happens? Well, traditionally, it's been in the private sector. And what's happened as you go into areas in rural Colorado where either you have low population density or very difficult topology issues, um, it's hard for the private sector to make the business case. When you say topography, topology, you just Uh mean you've got mountain passes. It's just difficult to build the infrastructure there. Exactly. And so what I think we need to do, again, going back to my example of, of what we've done before in this country where we have enabled electrification in rural parts of the state or voice services is help those companies with it. And that's the idea of a public-private partnership. So it's a combination of local resources within the community, it's state resources, and then it's also maybe federal and then also private sector. And so if there is public money, let's just Mm -hmm. say that could be state dollars or local dollars, Mm -hmm. that is what, an incentive to bring in a private company to help build this? Exactly. What we've done to date, um, for example, the Department of Local Affairs has set aside a $20 million fund for the last three years to build what we describe as middle mile infrastructure. So to get the big pipes into the community. Um, Do you need physical pipes for this? <laughs> fiber. It's fiber. fiber. Okay. fiber. Yep. And, and it's data pipes, but it's fiber. That's okay. that, you know, the ideal example of, of good broadband services is fiber, but there's many technologies that can deploy it to the home. And then what we've been doing through the Department of Regulatory Agency is investing in last mile projects as well in partnership with, with private enterprise. And it's a 50-50 match of 
state dollars with private dollars. And are they mostly on board, the private companies? Yeah, you find that um, you can't find a private company that doesn't believe that providing access to broadband is is not a good thing. Um, again, but they need help. They need help with deploying those services in those communities where it's very difficult for them to make money um, if they have to do all of that capital uh, construction to make it happen. Are we also seeing communities that simply become their own providers? Yes, you do. Um, I I think there are some examples you can see where um, municipalities where they may have um, a utility already in place where they may start providing broadband services on top of that. Usually a vote has to happen to make that happen, correct? Yeah, there's Senate Bill 152 that's been in place for a number of years, and the local community has to vote on a a ballot initiative to to say that it's okay for their municipality to get into providing a voice and telecommunication services. How many votes uh, have there been on that? Wow. I don't know the total number, but I will tell you that – it has gotten to the point now where almost any town or county that puts that on um, on a ballot, it passes overwhelmingly with 60, 70, 80 percent. Because, again, people understand the need for broadband services. Looks like it's voters in about 68 cities mm-hmm. so far that have gone ahead with that mm-hmm. local vote. What do you say to, to folks who, who think this should rest in the private sector and well, that the state is, is so strapped for cash for schools, for instance? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is this is not a priority. Um, I understand that that sentiment, but I also would say that what we're trying to do is not replace the private sector. What we're trying to do is help get the citizens of the state to have access to it. And again, for me, providing that infrastructure, I think, will help with some of the other challenges that we have with making sure that we can provide good educational outcomes or healthcare outcomes or other things that that we want to provide to the citizens of the state. Do you find the legislature in general is on board with the governor's view of this? I would say yes. Um, you know, in the latest legislative cycle, they they moved nine and a half million dollars over to the fund that we use for last mile deployments. And there's a lot of good discussion going on right now as to whether or not we can do more in the next legislative session. Give me examples of communities that are coming on line soon with broadband. Um, there's two great examples. Uh, one is, is Rio Blanco County. Um, the towns of Meeker and Rangeley, um, by later this summer, will both have gigabit services within their communities. Um, and that's a great example of a partnership between the, the local community, a private provider in that community, the state, to really make sure that they can build out that infrastructure. Another example is uh, in the Delta Montrose area with the Delta Montrose Electric Association is in the process of deploying gigabit services as well. Because I think one of the, the opportunities we have in a gym that we have in the state are our electric co-ops. They maybe huh. help solve this problem because they already have a lot of the infrastructure. And is it going to wind up being affordable in those communities? Um, that has to be one of the goals. I think, you know. That doesn't mean it's going to be affordable. It, it, yeah, and I think that uh, what I've seen so far in those two examples is that they've set out a pricing structure that allows you to have hundred megabit services for forty or fifty dollars per month, which is pretty reasonable if you think about what many of us pay on the front range for services. Nice to meet you. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Tony Neal Graves leads this state's broadband office. He has so for about four months, and we talked about the lack of reliable high speed internet in some parts of the state. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
should an expensive, risky, but life-saving treatment be given to a person who doesn't take care of himself? It's one example of an ethical dilemma that a new podcast takes on. Listeners are asked to weigh in, and the idea is to get everyone, not just healthcare professionals, thinking about these kinds of decisions. Dr. Matthew Winia is co-host of the new program Hard Call. He directs CU Center for Bioethics and Humanities, and welcome to the program. It's great to be here. Thanks. The first hard call you take on is actually about mental illness, whether Jeff Zinn of Denver should be involuntarily committed. And you look back to a time when he was a successful entrepreneur on the New York fashion scene, launching a new clothing line, making plans to promote it. Uh, Tell us more about the setting Jeff was working in and what he was doing. Sure. So uh, Jeff Zinn is uh, a remarkable individual. We've gotten to know him quite well through producing his story. These and, are real life cases. Yeah, this is a real guy. Yeah, uh, and he was um, he was in the fashion industry in New York City uh, in the fashion district, um, the garment district they call it. And um, according to his telling, uh, and I have no reason to doubt this, um, it's really quite a, a hard charging um, sort of cutthroat. Cutthroat, right, and with uh, really huge peaks and and potentially tremendous valleys, uh, where you can become an overnight success, and and in fact he has been uh, an overnight success uh, more than once within this industry, where he you know became a millionaire over uh, over a period of a very short very short period of time. So he is at the outset of the podcast. Um, he's really doing very, very well. Uh, he's an extremely high energy guy. Uh, his his wife says he's never been depressed a day in his life until that point, and he is um, he is just uh, over the top, uh, as it were, as it were, um, in terms of his level of enthusiasm and. Um, and so on for for starting this new business. Right. And the question is, how over the top is he sort of in control of his faculties? And it's around this time that he decides to make a big donation to charity as a way of getting attention for his new enterprise. And we have a recording from him talking about this at that time. Yeah, am I crazy? Am I really crazy? I'm possessed. I'm possessed by God. Because once I opened up the heart, once I gave that $100,000, which you make tenfold, and I'm going to keep giving, and I'm going to keep giving, and every day I'm giving. Today I gave $10 to this person, 20% of that, 30 to this person. I give to everyone, and it ain't going to stop. It ain't going to stop till either I'm broke or I'm the richest man in the universe. So you explore this question of who decides who is mentally ill from his perspective, but also from the perspective of his wife, his doctor, his business associates. And the, the stakes are high for these folks, obviously, with the new venture. Uh, how did his wife respond to, like, this big donation and his energy <laughs> at the time? Yeah, she uh, did not think this big donation was a good idea at all. Uh, she believed that this was a sign of a serious mental illness. Um, the fact that he thought he had this connection to God and that whatever he gave away, he would get back tenfold. Um, she felt like that was evidence of um, insanity. Uh, and in fact, she tricks him into going to see a psychiatrist uh, under the guise of marriage counseling. And so um, at the end of the first episode, we leave the audience with this question of what would you do if you were the psychiatrist? 
So you've you've got this guy coming in. The wife believes he is crazy. He acts a little bit nuts, um, but he's not threatening to hurt anyone. And the question for the psychiatrist is, do you call the police? Do you have this guy involuntarily committed for um, a mental illness and for treatment when um, – the the rules on that kind of thing are just uh, very difficult to apply sometimes. And, and his case is a particularly good example of how difficult it can be um, to determine whether someone poses a risk to themselves or others. This is The Hard Call that you have to make, and that's the name of this new podcast we're talking about, grounded in bioethics from the University of Colorado. And uh, why tell this story in particular right now? Well, we we definitely want to we, we wanted to have two different stories in our first um, sort of pilot season of hard call. We wanted one story that dealt with mental illness um, because that is such a common set of conditions, right? About one in five people in the United States has a mental illness within any given year. Um, about four or five percent of people have a very serious mental illness that dra- dramatically affects their ability to work. So it's super common. Um, and then we wanted to do a story that was around a high-tech um, intervention. And so that's the other story that we told. We'll talk about that in, in just a bit. But to the hard call around mental illness, um, isn't it possible that there is like a gray area, it's not a yes or a no, that the person does have a mental illness, but for all intents and purposes is functioning just fine or is not enough of a threat uh, there's a lot of gray area here, isn't there? There absolutely is. And um, this is one of the things where I feel like a, a perfect episode for me is an episode where we get to the hard call at the end and half the audience votes one way and half the audience votes the other. But everyone would say, I understand how someone could vote the other way. Mm. So they've taken, you know, often these are quite polarizing um, questions where they are yes or no questions, right? At, at the end of the day, for this psychiatrist... You have to make the decision. This was Do a yes I or no question. commit yeah. or not? Yeah, there was yeah. not a, a gray, there wasn't a gray answer. There, it was either I'm calling the police or I'm not. And yet you can easily um, come to see both sides of the of the po- both possibilities as being rational. Besides the podcast, there's a live theater aspect that presents these medical dilemmas on stage. And so I suppose in that way, you get not just response from the audience through social callouts on Twitter or something like that, but the audience is actually right there, ooing and aahing. Yeah, we like to do um, the storyline as a live theatrical event before we produce the podcast. And one of the reasons we do that um, as a live event is because it allows us to sort of learn how people are going to respond, how they might vote to different questions. So we've used what we learn during the live events to inform the development of the podcast storytelling. How did the live audience vote on whether to commit this gentleman? Oh, that's a great question. And I, I don't remember the exact numbers, okay. but it was about 70-30. To um, commit? Uh, no, actually it was 70-30 not to commit. Huh. And um, interestingly, we're running around that same proportion um, in the podcast first episode as well. Um, we'll see how that goes over time because we're getting more listeners all the time. But um, but there's a there's a there is a split, um, and I think a lot of folks are really taken by the fact that he was tricked into coming to the psychiatrist's office. 
And he thinks he's there for marriage counseling, which means he feels free to really rant and rave about his wife. Mm. And his ranting is what makes the psychiatrist start to question, is he um, insane and does he require involuntary hospitalization? But he he even says, had I known that I was being assessed for uh, hospitalization, I would have behaved differently. Yeah. Knowing you were being observed in that regard. Right. As you mentioned, the second series involves questions that arise from a medical device. This is called an LVAD, which stands for Left Ventricular Assist Device. And it can help patients with congestive heart failure, which is quite common. It can help them live longer by keeping their hearts pumping. But living with an LVAD isn't easy. They're going to have to tinker with it every day to keep it from getting infected. And here's a kicker. I got to be plugged into a damn battery or a wall outlet all the time. And if that battery fails or if you're not plugged in, you risk dying. Yeah, if you lose your source of power uh, to an LVAD, um, on average, uh, the individual will pass out within 20 seconds uh, and will die within minutes. And it requires a great deal of maintenance, a great deal of care beyond just the patient, him or herself. Yeah, these are fascinating and um, really, in many ways, miraculous devices. Um, They are the current generation of what you might have previously called an artificial heart. Um, Early artificial hearts um, were mechanically very difficult because they mimicked nature. They pumped like a a heart does, lub-dub, lub-dub. But it turns out doing it that way is extremely mechanically difficult and they tend to break. Uh, What someone eventually figured out was that if you create a pump that works more like the sump pump in your basement that just has a continuously running rotor, that will run for a long time without breaking. And so when someone has a left ventricular assist device, it's implanted next to their ventricle. It siphons blood from their ventricle and runs it through the body on a continuous basis. And what that means is that whereas a normal person has a pulsatile blood flow. A pulsatile? Meaning Meaning a pulse? Okay. Someone with an LVAD will often not have pulsatile blood flow. They have continuous blood flow. Ah. So if you tried to feel their pulse, they would have no pulse. It's more of a constant stream in that regard. Yes. And And this is a risky procedure. It's a very uh, it's a it's a major surgery. It's a several hours uh, worth of open heart surgery. So there's a hard call here that is made even more difficult because this particular patient smokes and drinks, has diabetes, doesn't really take care of himself. And boy, you throw in the expense of this uh, and whether this is a good candidate or not. And I guess the fundamental question is, is this the right treatment for the patient? And the patient and the doctor can come to very different conclusions with that question, can't they? Yes, they certainly could. Um, and and in this instance, um, it was a quite controversial decision whether to offer this patient um, an LVAD in large part because of his social circumstances. And this is one of the episodes really really drills in on this issue of when, if ever, is it acceptable for healthcare professionals to change what they offer someone because of that person's social circumstances as opposed to just thinking about the medical 
circumstances. What do you mean social circumstances? Just put a finer point on that. Well, so so this patient um, is under consideration for receiving this very complex uh, device, which will require a lot of caretaking for the first at least month after the operation. So he needs to have someone at home with him 24-7 for an entire month to take care of this device. And for him, that person is going to be his daughter. Now, it turns out that his daughter is not a very reliable individual. She's had multiple DUIs. Um, She has sort of – she's not a very reliable individual. And the question really arises for the care team, do we give one of these um, devices with all the risks they entail to someone who might not be able to take care of it once they get home? And it's so funny that the doctor has to consider that and potentially go well beyond the – health history of the patient, as you say, and start to dig into what is the very private life of the patient. Yeah. And I I have to say, in the context of doing this podcast, we interviewed a physician, uh, Dan Matlock, who's a geriatrician at the University of Colorado, who did such a good job of – I mean, first of all, he's just a kind, affable, intelligent person – He does such a good job of explaining why it is such a slippery slope to start thinking about person's uh, social circumstances when we make medical decisions and how that can contribute to healthcare disparities and how it can lead to discrimination and how it can feed off of racism and ageism and uh, all of these other issues that we're already trying to struggle with. And the moment we start to let social circumstances creep into medical decisions, we run the risk of going down a very dangerous path and at the, and so my job as the as the uh, sort of medical host of the podcast was to say yeah but but some of these social circumstances can impact the success or failure of the implantation of this device and so it becomes in that way very much a treatment question yes and it, i think it really is a very difficult question because i'm very sympathetic to dan's point of view and i'm also sympathetic to the point of view of someone who might say look, you don't want to put this device into someone if you believe that there's a high chance that it's just going to become infected or create problems. That could that could cause, you know, worse problems down the road than than not doing it. But a say a poor person whose family either works or is not available uh, might then not get a treatment that someone with means who could hire help might or whose family can afford to stay home. These are such personal stories, and they're they're real. And in the case of the the first one, the um, protagonist, the, the real life protagonist, played himself in the mm-hmm. podcast episode. What are the kind of HIPAA uh, privacy concerns? The ethical dilemmas of putting together an ethical podcast. Yeah, there have been a number of those, um, and we did uh, have to search for um, just the right person who was interested and willing to share their story, uh, especially with regard to the mental illness episodes. Um, The LVAD episode, um, in fact, is a four-episode series, and it follows a patient whom we have played by an actor. Um, And the story itself is true. The facts of the story are true. But we use an actor and we've changed names and a couple other circumstances 
to protect that patient and the patient's family's privacy. But did they have to sign off on it in any form? They did. We had a conversation to say we'd like to use this story. Um, But we will change things so that no one will know that it is you or your loved one that we're talking about. But incidentally, uh, I don't think it's giving away too much to say that this story, the the LVAD story, took place a few years ago and this patient is no longer with us. So it is not possible for us to use that actual patient. Dr. Winia, finally, is this a way of transmitting to the audience, to the general public – that doctors don't know it all and that they struggle perhaps as much as you might with these questions? Yeah, our um, our center uh, at the university is really charged with engaging the public in some of the most difficult ethical dilemmas uh, in healthcare. And those types of dilemmas don't just face doctors, they face patients and families as well. And so, um, so we are very interested in bringing the public in to understand better some of the really difficult challenges that, that physicians, dentists, doctors, nurses, all of us face in healthcare. Bioethicist Dr. Matt Winia from the CU Anschutz Medical Campus. He co-hosts the new podcast Hard Call with Elaine Grant. There's a link at cprnews.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Did you know the Libertarian Party started in Living Room in Westminster, Colorado? Friends gathered in the early 1970s to share their frustration about then-President Richard Nixon. Today, there are somewhere around half a million Libertarians registered nationwide, and there's a new project to document the party's history. As we'll hear, that history includes an important milestone for women in politics— Carrie Ann Harlos of Castle Rock is leading this project, and welcome to the program. Oh, thank you so much for ha- for having me. I understand there was a storage unit in Virginia full of artifacts and documents related to the Libertarian Party, uh, and apparently there was all kinds of lore surrounding this storage unit. Uh, yes, I've always been very interested in party history, and I was told, or there was this like urban legend in the party. We used to be in the Watergate building before, ironically. Oh wow! But there was a storage unit in the basement of the Watergate unit, and there was this legend that most of our records were destroyed in a flood in the Watergate unit in the Watergate building. And so I wanted to see what was left. So when I visited our headquarters in Virginia, I went to the office, and they showed me their files. Filing cabinets, and our executive director said, "Would you like to see the storage facility?" And I said, "The storage facility." I had heard it was wiped yes, out. Yes, and when I went in there, when he um, brought us down there, I was like, "Oh my goodness!" I could not believe the treasure of information that was just there in boxes that party members didn't know existed, and no one, no one got to appreciate. I don't like things sitting where no one gets to just appreciate these historical artifacts. And so you're digitizing many of them. We'll talk about what was in that storage unit in a bit, but. Uh, The living room where the party started in Westminster belonged to a man named David Nolan. Will you paint us a picture of of those early days? What have you heard about these living room meetings? You know, we grew very rapidly from just that living room 
from just that living room meeting, you know, but it was just a handful of people. They decided to start this party in Colorado. And then before you knew it, though, we had spread nationwide. And as you were you were getting to, unless you wanted to talk about that separately, about the the milestone for um, females is in 1972, Tony Nathan was a female, our uh, vice presidential nominee, and she is the first woman to ever receive an electoral college vote. Most people were thinking that was going to be somebody else, or they put a lot of hopes on Hillary. But it was actually the Libertarian Party that had the first female, um, you know, executive candidate to get an electoral college vote. It was a faithless elector out of Virginia, Roger McBride. This is uh, Theodora Tony Nathan. And uh, as you say, she was present at the uh, first presidential nominating convention in 1972 in Denver, right? Yes. Yeah. And, you know, we found an old interview with her. She passed away in 2014, but uh, she explains that she initially went to the convention as a journalist. She was doing a story about this fledgling party. I went to the convention and there weren't any other journalists to speak of. And lo and behold, you know, I got asked if I wanted to run for vice president. Now, I had an opponent, a woman from, um, I think it was New Mexico. And uh, I talked to my family, and they thought I should run. And uh, so I put my name in. And when I got up to speak, I spoke in my best broadcast manner, of course. And it was effective. I got the nomination. Tony Nathan, so the first woman in the United States to receive an electoral college vote. But as I said, this was uh, in many ways on, on the back of David Nolan, this man who helped found the Libertarian Party. What can you tell us about him? He was such an interesting man that was involved in so many different things. But I, I believe just like a... a you know, at that time, the the Libertarian movement before the party was already very, you know, there was a... a, a underground wellspring. And and he was in the midst of that. But I just think he had such a sharp, clear mind and vision to to bring this forward. And what were the founding principles? What was that first platform, for instance? Well, the, the Libertarian Party is very interesting in that we are an ideological party, not necessarily an issues party. So we have a, a statement of principles, which is what we judge everything by. And that's remained unchanged since 1974. Okay, give me an example. Sure. It would be absolute self-ownership, that you own your body. So that means that you could do whatever with your body that you wish as long as it doesn't harm another person's rights in their body or in their property. And also something called the non-aggression principle, which is everything would be mem- would be measured by that, that um, violence or coercion should never be used against peaceful people. And that has a lot of implications today for things such as immigration, for things such as the drug war, for things such as, um, you know, seizing people's property in civil asset forfeiture. So I want to talk about some of the history you're unearthing. Uh, We mentioned that storage unit that you said was a treasure trove. And there are, for instance, early issues of Libertarian Party News or LP News, a publication of the Libertarian National Committee. And you found issues dating back to to about 72. What, What stood out about them to you? 
Well, actually, it's from 71. I mean, we have all the way back to the very beginning. I don't have issue one. We're beginning to suspect there wasn't an issue one. But it's things (laughs) like that. that Well, I actually think it was the the announcement that the party was formed that they were counting as one. But it's neat filling in these holes where we wonder, wow, there's nothing here. Did they ever exist? What happened? But what struck me about it is that when you're a young political party, you have absolutely nothing to lose. And so it's like watching a life almost. So you're watching someone in their in their younger, brash youth years. And some of the things that were, were said, you know, today we're more mature and you have wiser marketing skills. But when you're that new and you have nothing to lose, it's sometimes just very humorous. Give that, me an example. Well, from way back then. I'm not, you know, I'm not even entirely sure that I have one off the tip of my head, but let me give you one from the 90s. If you remember when the um, legislation had come through that you could only have three-gallon toilet toilet flushing bowls, there used to be high-capacity toilets that you would actually have a good flush when you were in there. Well, we put out these hilarious press releases about, you know, how Washington is spinning around the drain and, you know, we need to flush them. And it's just all these toilet bowl jokes were just absolutely amazing. The Libertarian Party obviously feeling that that was government overreach to tell you how much water you could have in your toilet. Exactly. That is not that is not the, the, the state's responsibility to nanny us in our bathrooms. And yet your toilet today probably uses less water and flushes decently, I gather. I wouldn't say it flushes decently. I don't want to get into too much detail here, but I'm sure a lot of people will empathize. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and there's a project underway to document the history of the Libertarian Party, a history that began in a living room in Westminster, Colorado. I'm joined by Karen Ann Harlos of Castle Rock, who is leading this project. And uh, I know that there was some... Uh, wrangling about what the name of the Libertarian Party would be and what its slogan would be. That was proclaimed, I think, in January of 72. Libertarian Party is name of choice convention to meet in Denver. And what was the original slogan for this party? It still is our slogan. It's on our current website. It is Party of Principle. And that was to indicate to people, you might be talking about the other one. There's two. Um, We also had there ain't no such thing as a free lunch, which might be the other thing that you're getting at. There ain't no such thing (laughs) as a free lunch. This became an acronym, Tanstoffel or something like that. Yes. How you pronounce, that's also part of it. But yes. There ain't no such thing as a free lunch. What does that tell us about the Libertarian Party? It says that we believe in personal responsibility, that no one should be forced to support you or provide you with something, that you're responsible for your own life and your own happiness. And that phrase actually came out of a Heinlein um, novel, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, which is considered to be an excellent work of libertarian science fiction. Do you think that today, if you were to look back at uh, the progress of the Libertarian Party, that David Nolan would be disappointed? And the reason I ask that is it's not a party that is in power in any substantial way in this country. Okay, this... I often sometimes say some Libertarian heresy, so I guess, you know, maybe I better watch it here. No. Um, The Libertarian Party is very passionate. And no matter what period of time we're talking about, there are going to be people thrilled to death and there's going to be people disappointed. Um, Do I think right now David Nolan would be disappointed? Well, in some ways, I think he would and in others not. We had more votes than we've ever had in the last election. But David was also very much sold on the idea that our purpose was not 
only to win office, but was to, to, to educate, to move what's called the Overton window, and that the only way we can do that is to really boldly declare libertarian principles. Other people have a different point of view, and their view is, is valid as well, that maybe we need to ease people into it. But David came more from the, you need to boldly say what we want, not, what, not you know, flutter around the edges. What phrase did you use there, Overton window? The Overton window is, you know, something politically might at first be unthinkable. And then as more people start to embrace it, the the window of public opinion shifts. It was that way with gay marriage. Now it's completely acceptable. But one thing the Libertarian Party has always stood for the complete and equal rights of gay folks since then when it was not popular. And I believe that we are one of the forces that shifted the Overton window on that. And now nobody even raises an eyebrow. Same thing pretty much with, with marijuana legalization. And um, transgender um, people. Not that these are in any way resolved in the country, but back to this living room in Westminster. Is the house still standing? Yes, it is. I'm such a a Libertarian Party geek that I did go by there and took a picture in front of it. Do you know the family that lives in the house? And do they know the history of their own living room? It is like in a townhouse complex, so I don't know if they know. I really don't. But when I posted that picture, they're like, are you really stalking him after he's dead? Uh, but I, I, if you were that family, it would be so fascinating to know that your living room had played uh, a role in this. It'd be even more fascinating if they were like completely the opposite of libertarians. <laughs> I suppose that's true. <laughs> Do you want to leave us with one more object you have found or maybe one you wish to get uh, a hold of that that you haven't? Well, I'm going to I'm going to cheat and give you two. Okay. Um, we have the what we found in there are some 1970s broadcast reels. It's those two inch um, quadruplex, which you know, I learned things that I'd never learned before. Broadcast reels of McBride and some of our, our early figures, and we're going to be sending those off to be preserved and archived. And I hope that they play. That will be just a fascinating look into history. But some things that we um, would still want to obtain, there is someone out there who has one of the most important important to, to people like me, um, documents, which was the original um, handwritten, not handwritten, typewritten with some handwritten notes, statement of principles. But early party artifacts such as that were always on the lookout for. You mentioned McBride. This is Roger McBride, who was a presidential nominee of the Libertarian Party, I think in 76. Uh, thanks for sharing this with us. Good luck uh, hunting. All right. Thank you so much. Karen Ann Harlows is with the Libertarian Party of Colorado. She leads an effort to document and digitize the party's 45-plus years of history. And as we said, everything is being made available online. It's been three months since investigators linked a home explosion in Firestone, Colorado, to an improperly capped and abandoned underground flow line. Well, now, following state-ordered inspections, local governments are exploring what new levels of control they can exert without running afoul of the law. CPR News' Grace Hood reports. The scene feels like a high school science fair. A bare-bones gymnasium, cookies, and lots of poster boards at a dozen stations. But this Broomfield gym is the newest chapter in the complicated back-and-forth between oil companies and residents. 200 people came here to learn more about sweeping new oil and gas rules proposed by a citizen-led committee, including Kunta Hutabara, 
I'm an engineer, so I'm, I'm trying to be very objective. Hutabara moved from Wisconsin to Colorado about five years ago. He did his research and settled on Anthem Ranch in Broomfield. So he was surprised when he learned that the company Extraction Oil and Gas proposed drilling sites adjacent to his house. Broomfield began reviewing its regulations in 2016. Then this spring, a home exploded in Firestone, killed two people and injured one. This is not a manufacturer or a robot that every day it will do the same thing again and again. This is human. Human make mistakes. And when mistakes happen, things can go pretty bad. A 14-member citizen committee wants Broomfield to go beyond what's required by the state. They say air, soil, and groundwater within 500 feet of a new well should be monitored regularly. Companies should be required to map and limit underground flow lines. And committee member Susan Spees says setbacks between wells and homes should be more than double what the state currently requires. This is a recommendation from the Health Committee that, based on some of the catastrophic events, we looked at what was the circumference and area of biggest concern. Broomfield City Council members will decide what recommendations become law. It's a town that sought to impose a long-term moratorium on drilling in 2013. But the Colorado Supreme Court said last year that move was illegal. So officials are looking for new tools. Greg Stokes sits on the Broomfield City Council. And we're trying to push the boundaries just enough that we don't, you know, jump off a cliff. The oil and gas industry is watching for legal missteps. To Stokes, a key goal is to not provoke lawsuits. Meantime, emotions among residents are intense. Stokes recently survived a recall vote initiated by Broomfield residents who wanted less oil and gas development. So I think now the, you know, the discussion has to be in more detail. And as much as we uh, talk about just being policy folks, you know, city council members now have to really get into the details of the technology and have advisors that understand that. The industry trade group Colorado Oil and Gas Association is closely monitoring what cities are doing. President and CEO Dan Haley says the proposed Broomfield setback would go beyond what the state requires. By their estimation, that's illegal. It is best to let the state regulate these things and not overreach on a local level when you're looking to do something to respond to Firestone. If Broomfield approves the setback, Haley says the oil and gas trade group would review its legal options. Broomfield isn't the only town looking for more control. Thornton City Council is also weighing comprehensive rules that include a 750-foot setback requirement between wells and homes. City Councilor Josh Ziegelbaum acknowledges that's 250 feet greater than the minimum distance dictated by the state. He thinks it's within his city's rights. When you can do a horizontal well to two miles, 250 feet won't be that impactful on their ability to take the minerals, um, but from our perspective, that could be the difference in somebody's life. But that calculation is the kind of thing that could land a city or town in court. Any community looking at new rules is caught between strongly competing forces, the citizens who push for tighter control of the oil and gas industry, and an industry that is poised to take them to court if they go too far. Broomfield and Thornton will finalize their approaches in the coming weeks. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. Finally today on Colorado Matters, independent musicians from all over performed hundreds of shows recently at the Underground Music Showcase. Some of these performances in Denver's Baker neighborhood were on the front porch of a house. 
It belongs to Jesse Witten, music director at CPR's Open Air. A jazz funk band called The Other Black trimmed down from about a dozen or so members to just four so they could play the intimate porch show. We leave you with the song Genie Lamp. It's that initial connection when you when you first meet eyes and that first embrace leaves such a nice surprise. Cause it leaves such a feeling Skin crawls up and down Up and down, up and down Not quite sure what you did Still you can't hold the fire